two weeks ago we did look at singleness. Today I do want to look at marriage. And in that, as soon as we give the whole thing of looking at honouring Christ in marriage, we could potentially say, well, again, like singleness, marriage is a huge kind of brushstroke of loads of different situations. And I don't want to shy away from that, that we could be married and happy. We could be married and unhappy. We could be married and thriving. We could be married and striving. We could be married and surviving. We could be married and separated. We could be married and separating. We could be divorced. We could be nearly married. We could be remarried. We could be widowed. We could be with children. We could have no children. And there's a whole area of same-sex marriage. Now, on that front, just as I said two weeks ago, we're not shying this issue, but rather want to give the time and energy we feel is necessary for it. And if we're going to look at the whole area of sexuality in September, we're not going to do it on a Sunday morning. We're going to do it on a Sunday evening because we feel like that will give us way more time to look at it give us way more time to discuss and debate it rather than just feeling something that's presented and feel that it's an important one we want to do. However, the passage we're going to look at today is where Paul is looking at heterosexual marriage, the marriage between man and woman. And therefore, that's what we're going to go in on. Now, in it, you may be here, and there's two other comments I want to make. Firstly, is you could be here and say, well, I'm not married. Well, I think if we only teach on subjects that are to do with everyone in the room, we miss the kind of part of what we're meant to be as a bunch of people, and that's a community. And therefore, the Bible is always there, and these letters that Paul was writing to the local church communities were in to a community of lots of different people at lots of different life stages. And it isn't that we only ever seek to get the bit that fits with us, but rather we get to understand what it looks like for others in order that we can stand alongside them and encourage them in their pursuit of being this prism of God's identity, Jesus' identity being worked through their life stage. So just as all of us listened in on singleness a couple of weeks ago, I want all of us to listen in in terms of marriage today. The other thing to say is what we're going to be looking at is heterosexual marriage in which both partners are seeking the best for the other. Therefore, what we're going to be looking at doesn't apply if you're in a marriage where it's an abusive marriage. That's not what we're going to be talking about. So if you're in an abusive marriage, that might be in respect to uh, abuse mentally, it might be physical, it might be emotional. If that is not God's best for you. And my plea for you, as I did this in the first meeting, my plea for, to you is that please don't leave today having not spoken to someone and say, this is the reality I'm living in. Because we don't want to live in a fake reality or feel like we can't speak out. Uh, So I'd say that. Otherwise, before we get into the passage we're going to look in and look at, uh, Lucy and I talked and we just felt like it'd be right to tell some of our story. Tell some of our story of what it looks like for us being married. And in it, that's in order that it doesn't become the example of everything, but rather that we're saying, look, we're on a journey too. And we've come some way, as you can see. (laughs) So over to Lucy. So we welcome Lucy. I can't help thinking, what a pair of Muppets. Look at that. Anyway, um, (laughs) um, I'm going to speak for a few minutes about our story, which I've called Crafted Through Sin, Mistakes, Foolishness and a Total Commitment to Jesus. Adrian and I met in August 1992. I was 16, he was 18 and had a car. Um, (laughs) It's very very important. Um, We were going out within a few weeks and we were married four years later in 1996. So it was nearly our 20th wedding anniversary. Um, 
as we come to look at this scripture about marriage, we wanted to share just some of the reality. Um, we've had times when we're thriving, times when we're striving, and quite a lot of times when we're just about surviving. Um, shortly after we were married, our leaders gave us some really simple but really powerful advice. They said, write a mission statement for your relationship, stick it on the fridge, and then live by it for the rest of your lives. We came up with this. Adrian and Lucy exist in order to love God, love others and build the local church. To a large extent, as we look back, the hardest times have been when we've either lost sight of that mission or when we've got those three simple tenets in the wrong order. So I'm going to talk under four headings, becoming one, becoming three, four, five and struggling, becoming best friends again. Oh, no, it's five headings, becoming ill and then where we're at now. Okay, so first of all, in the first five years of our marriage, uh, we had way too much focus on that part of our mission statement about loving others and building the church. We forgot to protect the most precious gift of all. Um, I was more of an introvert, or still am more of an introvert than Adrian, and we spent a lot of our evenings apart. He was rushing around frantically building the local church and also partying. I think we were really young, weren't we? Yeah. Um, so he was just out a lot, and I stayed in and mainly cleaned the bathroom. Um, <laughs> So that wasn't brilliant. Also, in a bid to include other people, because we didn't want to leave anybody out, we sort of forgot to be exclusive. We kept dragging these poor people on holiday with us. Remember that? It was a really bad idea. And we um, we needed to add into our mission statement, we exist to love God, love each other first, love others, then build the local church. And just as an aside, I wanted to share the reality that our sex life was just ridiculous. When two virgins who spent four years trying not to sleep together at all first get under the covers, it's less like Romeo and Juliet and more like Dumb and Dumber. And that's the truth. <laughs> anyway, that was the first five years. Then um, in a, we had hundreds of children, well, three. Um, and, <laughs> and in that chaos of small children, no sleep, no time with God or, or with one another, it was quite a painful time, actually, of a lot of separation. At the lowest points, it felt like there was me and the kids over here and then Adrian and his other wife, Oasis Church, over here. He spent more time with Gus than with me. That's true, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Um, so um, I totally lost sight of my identity. I forgot that wife and mother are just kind of job titles rather than the definition of who I am. I felt incredibly guilty. I was a terrible stay-at-home mum. I thought that's what I was supposed to do, and I was rubbish at it. I was a dreadful pastor's wife. And it drove me to a really ugly place inside. Um, several years into that, I was lucky enough to go on a group retreat with a super spiritual friend where we were sort of led into a kind of meditation where we imagined we were walking through some of the gospel stories with Jesus. And one that really uh, affected me was where we were asked to imagine that we're with Jesus or... Um, after Jesus had raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, we were there. Where would you imagine that you'd be, the lady asked? Are you right next to Jesus? Are you a faithful disciple? Are you an onlooker, just weighing things up right now? Are you cynical? Where are you in this scene? What I pictured was myself at the back of the crowd, filthy, ashamed, alone, not able to reach Jesus or even see him much. Meanwhile, I could see Adrian leaping around at the front. I wanted to cry out, I'm still here. As I prayed, I saw Jesus press through the crowd towards me and lead me to a safe place. 
First I stood in one corner, faced, facing away, amazed he could even remember who I was. Slowly I realised others were there and he invited all of us to draw close to him, to sit with him. I felt too overwhelmed and I felt the Holy Spirit scoop me up and allow me to just lean into him and rest. And I just want to say, if you're in that season of life with tiny kids, I think most of those people are in the earlier meeting, or just in a place where you're just shattered and you feel like I did at that point, just please talk to someone about that reality and allow God to come and meet you where you are. Also at that season, I forgot that I couldn't really be physically present at lots of church meetings and events, but I could still build the local church through loving and supporting Adrian. He soldiered on. He went grey during those years, uh, but he carried a lot on his own. He felt really isolated. He felt I wasn't interested and that my first love for him had been completely replaced by the children. Both of us had times where it was lonely and desperate. And um, I'd urge you if your marriage is in that place, to fight, to stay friends with each other. Because then the next part of our story, years sort of 13 to 15, was building back up our friendship. When it got really desperate, we realised that's what we needed to do. I went back to work. I'm not saying that's right for everybody, but for me, that really helped me discover me again. Um, And the children got a little bit older, a bit more independent, and we completely exploited Adrian's parents, who were happy to babysit. So we could carve out some date nights, we got a weekend away together, and then we sort of renewed that place in our hearts that belongs only to one another, where we've both given out in the wrong places in a way. There still are huge challenges around tiredness. Last January only, we went out for a date in the evening. Adrian was so tired, he couldn't think of anything to say. Can you imagine? He had not a word to say, and I fell asleep in between ordering the food and the food arriving. So... (laughs) Tiredness is still an issue, but I think we're in a stronger place. Um, Then about two and a half years ago, a sequence of events, mostly around work, led to me having a proper breakdown um, and a period of overwhelming depression for me. I had had antenatal, uh, not antenatal, postnatal depression before, but this was like incredibly dark. Um, I really believe the best course of action would be for me to take my life, relieving ageing and the kids of the horror of having to live with me. Um, I just want to mention that and just give credit to the incredible support I had through the NHS um, and and also the incredible support that Adrian was. Um, I think that in sickness and health foul really came into sharp focus because he fought to understand me. Um, and if you're here struggling with mental illness, I really encourage you to get support from doctors, friends, church, anyone, everyone, the interweb. It's Um, it's something that kind of blindsided me but it really opened our eyes to um, all the help that's there and just how um, how much it's important to talk about it and then finally now where we're up to becoming all we're meant to be hopefully next 20 years I'm gradually getting better uh, and we're revisiting our mission and our purpose we know we've both changed you have to look at that to see that Um, and we're trying to live more and more back for that audience of one. It's only about me and Jesus, really, in the end. We've realised that the pain of being misunderstood by others is soothed best by the friendship we have with one another. And we're looking for ways to keep our relationship exciting and exclusive and exemplary as we go forward.
I think um, if this is your first time around us, maybe you're thinking, what on earth's going on here? <laughs> what I hope you'll discover about us is that we don't want to just take the Bible and say, okay, great. We want to take it and say, this is through the lens then of our own lives. And that's the point at which we work from. And therefore, I'm hoping that what you're going to see, and I promise you, you'll see it by the end, is that Lucy and I are definitely on a journey on this, a journey of continuously together, regardless of what life is throwing at us, saying, how do we work this identity we have in Jesus through this prism of our marriage? And genuinely, I feel like even like some of the darker moments over the last kind of three years, uh, Lucy and I would look and say, it's not something we'd have ever chosen, but it's not something we'd ever change. And I, I think I, we both could truly say that, and I think have been enriched. I think that's probably the word I'd use through it. Uh, but in all of that, I do want to look at the Bible. It isn't just a, oh, this is interesting about Adrian and Lucy. It is also hopefully going to allow us to see this lens of the scripture through a different view. And so if we turn Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 32, it says this, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. But they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm not talking about Christ, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Right. In a moment, how we're going to do this is Lucy's going to address wives, as we felt that was probably the most appropriate, and then I'll address husbands briefly. But before we get there, I want us to understand, because Paul can't help himself in terms of earthing what it looks like to live in the fullness of Christ's identity through marriage by saying, actually, before I move on to earthing this, I want us to understand that there's a this of earthly marriage that points to this greater that that every single person gets to enjoy that is about this amazing heavenly marriage that is the destiny of everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. And so if we flip through, this is about that. I love scripture because there are often great moments of this is about that. In actual fact, you can look at most of the world around us and say, oh, this, this that you see in the natural points this greater that that you see about God. And this is one of those moments. And so Paul just simply says, right, when two people who are married will become one flesh, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. When Lisa and I were talking about this, we were kind of toying with this whole phrase of mystery. And it's though Paul kind of looking at marriages around him, saying, this is a mystery. That this reveals Jesus and the church. I think there was an element of that. There was also this element of what Paul was saying is something that was unseen. Something that could have never been imagined. We get to look in on. And that is what you see in earthly marriage points to what every one of us gets to relate to Jesus in and like. And so he says there's this sense of as we become one in earthly marriage, it reveals how we're one with Jesus. So what does that word one mean? So often we see, oh yeah, they two have become one. 
sex. That's what it is. To one, sex. No, that's not what's being spoken of. You see, one is something far fuller than just simply sex. See, one is about being known fully and knowing fully. So within marriage, earthly marriage, it's that sense of exclusivity, of saying, actually, I'm seeking exclusive anyone else to say, I want to seek to be known by you and to know you as fully as I can. I'm seeking to be intimate only with you. I'm seeking to care you uniquely compared to everyone else. I'm seeking to be joined to you in a way, a commitment, that is going to outweigh any other commitment I have to anyone else. And Paul says, when you see that, it actually points to something far greater. It points to how this is what's the truth of how we are now related to Jesus. We're now one with him, every single one of us. We're now in a relationship where we can, be, we can fully be known by Jesus and fully know him. That we can know that he fully wants to be intimate with us. In order that we'd know that we're more loved than we could dare to believe. In order that we'd understand that he fully wants to care for us. And also that he's fully joined to us. In a way that means that now everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus is now in Christ. Eternally, forever, can never be separated from, from him. That every single one of us is now uniquely one with him. So Paul wants us to understand, when we're looking at marriage, what it's going to do is cause us to say, oh, this is how I relate to Jesus? This sense of commitment and oneness is what I get to enjoy. Now, from that point, having said, right, this earthly marriage is about this greater that of how we relate to Jesus, Paul then says, all right, okay, but you've got to earth it. It's got to change how you relate then as wives to husbands and husbands to wives. So this is going to pick up in terms of wives to husbands. Okay, I'm just going to speak fairly briefly about my understanding of uh, and struggles with Paul's specific instructions to wives. First of all, we have to look at these verses in context, both the overall context of Ephesians chapter 5 and the immediate context of the verse before, verse 21. Adrian explored this verse four weeks, four weeks ago. Four weeks ago um, and the, <laughs> it might have been four weeks ago. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and that lays the foundation for the section that we're about to come on to, which is practical advice. So Ephesians 5 verse 21 says, Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, so Paul is assuming and presupposing that the wives he's addressing in verse 22 are those who are submitting to Christ. In fact, the verb submit does not actually appear in verse 22 in the Greek. So the call for submission in verse 21 is intended to carry over on into verse 22. So before we can talk about submitting to husbands, we've got to look at the whole Jesus thing. He's, Paul is assuming that by now, five chapters in, we've grasp that we are of equal and immeasurable worth before God. So when he then addresses individuals, wives, husbands, masters, slaves, children, parents, he's talking about our role and not our personhood in Christ. To put this, um, oh, I've got a fancy quote up there, equality of worth is assumed. Paul is addressing submission as part of God's divine ordering of society, not as worth and value. Uh, to put it in a really sort of simplistic way I'm an English teacher in my school there are maths teachers we're of equal value but our roles are so entirely different although secretly English teachers better but anyway um so this instruction to submit to our husband is to do with playing our part in the system God's devised 
and it is ultimately about our submission to Christ. Christ is he who wields all authority as our Lord and yet humbled himself completely as our servant. That's who we're building our lives on and around. Moreover, the word submit is closely related to the biblical term surrender. Surrender is a battle term which implies giving up all rights to the conquering army. When an opposing army surrenders, they lay down their arms and the winners take control. And surrendering to God is like this. The good news is that God's plan is always for our best interests. He conquers us in order to bless us. There are different levels of surrender to him. First, the drawing of the Holy Spirit leads us to salvation. Second, when we um, let go of our own attempt to earn God's favour and rely upon the finished work of Jesus and become a child of God. And then thirdly, as we walk with him, different periods of greater and greater surrender, leading to deeper intimacy and closeness with him. The more areas of our life we surrender over to him, the more room there is for the filling of the Holy Spirit. So as Galatians 2 verse 20 sums up really the Christian life, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So before we go any further and look at practicalities, can we just park here for a moment? Where, where are our hearts at before the Lord? How submitted or surrendered are we before him? When did we last get on our knees and lay everything down before him? For me, submission to Christ has certainly involved some specific, significant, life-changing moments. But mostly, it's about the day-in, day-out, decision to crucify my self-centeredness, my arrogance, my selfishness, my pride. We're about to get onto the husband stuff. I just want to raise one question. Even if the answer I give isn't quite where you're at, I need to touch on this. What about feminism? By which I mean the drive to ensure equality for all men and all women. I need to confess that I am a 21st century British woman with a university degree. My study at university seemed to be mainly about how throughout literature and history, and particularly in church history, women everywhere have been completely oppressed by men everywhere. And Bible verses like the one I'm about to tackle have been misused to support that. So to be honest with you, there's a part of me that hates the fact I'm speaking on this verse. My younger self, like you saw in the photo, would point blank refuse to do it. In fact, my younger self had many heated debates with a brown-haired version of Adrian <laughs> about this verse, the role of women in the church, women in leadership, and lots of lovely areas that we'll come back to on another preach one day, maybe. Um, I just wanted to acknowledge there's a part of my brain that's saying, Lucy, you've been brought up to believe you can do anything and be anything you want. You could run the country if you wanted. And all of the struggles of feminists before you have fought have brought you to this and then there's the saved part of me that has really challenged me because as I've got to know Jesus as my Lord I realize he is the greatest feminist of all time he is the one um, who ordained from the start of creation that women and men are equal he is the one in his earthly life he spent time with women discipling them honoring them in a way that was totally unprecedented in Jewish culture at that time and actually, the totality of what Paul is writing about here is that whilst wives submit to the loving protection of their husbands, both flourish. 
So the other disappointing truth that I've had to come to terms with is that I am most released to be me. I'm most empowered to achieve what I'm called to do under the safety, the protection, the kindness provided through Adrian. Gutted. (laughs) It's taken me about 19 and a half years to get to this point. So just finally, submission is not inferiority. Okay, that was point one, but the other two are quicker. Point two, submit to our husbands in everything. So how does this all relate to aging? Unlike Jesus, he's not perfect. He's pretty close, but he's not perfect. On a regular basis, he hurts my feelings. He frustrates me. He makes stupid mistakes. He announces triumphantly at five past seven every weekday morning, I've made the pat lunches. It's not that I don't appreciate the pat lunches being made, but the expectation that all of us will stop what we're doing and say, oh, thanks, Dad, that's great. (laughs) What can I say? Um, It's good for my character, that is. The good news is, husbands, submission to Adrian is actually to do with my heart before Christ, not who he is. So it isn't dependent on his mood, his attitude, his behaviour, his desperate need for pat lunch applause. (laughs) Phew. So I just want to give five sort of areas where I think um, I'm working on submitting to my husband. I'm going to look at attitudes, thoughts, words, actions and decisions. First of all, heart attitude. I have to protect my heart attitude towards my husband. Most of ordinary life is that mundane stuff. The laundry, the vacuuming, who's taking the dog out, who's letting the dog in, who's feeding the rabbit, who's taking the children somewhere. Has anyone collected the children? And in all of that, we did actually forget one this week, didn't we? Um, in all of that, it's, my heart can get really, really tired. And then come in the ugly attitudes. Why does he never empty the kitchen bin? I'm just too tired to hear about this, talk about this, watch that program. I'd rather do my own thing right now. Doesn't he know how much I've already done for him today? So how do I protect my heart against that? I can't change the um, practicalities of life. How can I protect my attitude? Um, I do two things every day. I pray for him. I thank God for him every day. And I choose to remember the things that I love about him I'm thankful for. Things like his wisdom, his honesty, his kind heart, his good looks, his strange sense of style. Um, And the good times that we've spent together. I also forgive quickly, daily sometimes several times every day, sometimes several times every minute, often for the same things. It's okay. Um, I read this week, I love this quote, a happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. Attitudes really link very closely to thoughts. I choose to think good things about ageing. It's in our psyche to be critical. It's really easy to criticise and it can be quite funny, but it can also be really devastating. Um, I also share wisely with a couple of really good friends I know who know me well and also know and love Adrian really well. So when there are frustrations or things, I know I can safely say to them, look, it's not empty the kitchen bin again. And they can say, that's okay, let's talk about what's good about Adrian. They can support me in being honest but wanting to push through on things. And the final thing in terms of thinking is choosing not to compare Somebody said to me, comparison kills, and that's true about many, many things, but it's really true in a marriage. If I started thinking, you know, well, somebody else's husband, you know, isn't so grey or, you know, 
wears normal clothes or things like that. It can be it can really damage the way I see this one. Okay, um, I want to talk about words. Within the first year of our marriage, we realised that we were both being really sarcastic. It was quite funny, but it was actually would cause a lot of hurt. And by the time we reached our first wedding anniversary, we had agreed we're not going to relate in that way. And on the whole, we've sought to do that since. We've now got teenage children, which makes it more challenging because they're sarcastic. But towards one another, I think we've maintained that and that has really helped us. Um, I was thinking about before we got married, I used to cycle across Bedford to, to Adrian and that just so I could walk with him to work to see him every day. Why did we do that? What did we talk about? Nobody knows. You can't remember. Can you? We, we don't know. But it was just so pleasurable to spend time talking. And again, as life is now full of responsibilities, it's easy to only use words for the stuff like, can you buy some milk? Where are the car keys? Who's picking up Sam? Things like that. And forgetting to use the words about how much we love and appreciate each other. And I've been reflecting on using the best words I have to talk to Adrian or to text him, just to encourage him or lighten his day or remind him that he's loved. Sometimes saving something really exciting, be tempting to share with a colleague at work, but I actually want to share first with my husband. Those of you who know me well know that I trawl the interweb, as I like to call it, looking for resources and ideas to help me be a better wife. I recently signed up for a lovely little scheme called the Husband Project. Wives opt in, you spend 21 days getting suggestions to your inbox of different things you could do that will build your husband up. Many of those suggestions are really, really good. Uh, some are less so. One day, a couple of weeks ago, the author suggests, make your husband a coffee and stick a post-it note on it with saying, your butt looks cute today. <laughs> Um, I hope, even if you've never met me before, you can imagine that I didn't do that. Um, but suggestions like that remind me to find ways to use words, to tell and write or even email agent that communicate that I really love him. Um, I just want to come on to actions and decisions. Um, actions that show submission are obviously going to really vary from one household to another. Um, but I think mainly it does come down to the small things because that's what most of life is around. Um, for me, some actions that involve a choice to honour Adrian are around affection. I'm not nat naturally a particularly tactile person. So even giving a hug or kiss or being intimate when I'm exhausted or making the effort to organise the date night so we can get some time together and choosing then to listen with my whole self to him all mean a lot to him. Um, and if you are married, I'd encourage you to just sort of pause on that and think what actions make a difference in your home to the person that you love most. I also wanted to manage, you must uh, mention, you must forgive me if, this, if you all know this, but some books came out a few years ago about the five different love languages, the five different types of love or ways that people give and receive love. And if you've not ever come across those, I think you can probably just Google them, but find the five different ways that people give and receive love. Time, gifts, acts of service, affection and words of affirmation. And that's really helpful, actually, for any kind of relationship um, to understand that maybe I'm giving you lots of time, but what you most wanted was a word of affirmation and finding the ways to love each other best. Also, it really helps Adrian when I spend more of my affection on him rather than our dog. <laughs> a recent issue. Um, oh, I've lost my thing about decisions. Oh, well. And uh, make good decisions. Good, Okay. <laughs> Finally, at the end of verse 32, we're told we must respect our husbands. And I just want to address why, how and when before I hand back to Adrian. 
Respect here in this verse is a choice. It's not an emotion. I don't always feel full of respect for Adrian, but I endeavour to choose to respect him. The why is very simple. It's a command. Paul presents this as must. It's an imperative verb. I think it's partly because he wants to call out the best in our marriages at this point. A marriage will work if the wife respects her husband. And I also wonder if, like many of us, Paul has witnessed the damage that it causes when wives disregard their husbands or put them down in public. Just a thought. And here are 10 suggestions for how to help you respect your husband, pray for him, make a list of your husband's good qualities, tell him what you appreciate about him, listen to him, don't put him down in front of others, put positive spin on things that annoy you, make love more, Um, involve him in your life, talk in I statements and believe your husband has good intentions. Number nine, where I said talking I statements, what I mean by that is when we're frustrated with one another, we endeavour to begin sentences, I feel sad that, or I am disappointed that, rather than accusational, you've done that wrong again. Although, a couple of weeks ago, we had an argument in which Adrian said, I feel that you're really annoying me. So, (laughs) (laughs) So, that... Obviously, I would never do that, and that was a mis- that was a misuse of the of the I statements. And also, number ten, believe your husband has good intentions. You know, when I see that kitchen bin overflowing, tea bags coming out the top, and I've just got back from you know walking the dog, I could think, why doesn't he empty it ever? Or I could think, you know, he's a good bloke and he's probably made the pat lunches, and you know, he has got. <laughs> He has got good intentions. It isn't probably on any husband's agenda in the room to annoy their wife. Not not usually in a happy marriage. Okay. And just finally, oh, when at all times, always choose respect. Finally, when I don't have, um, have respect for Adrian, when I don't submit to him, what happens? Three things. It hurts him. It hurts others around us who can feel really confused or embarrassed or cynical about love. And it hurts Jesus. He had enough humility and enough love and respect for me to lay down all of his glory. And I don't think he's asking too much for me to have respect for my husband. Okay, I'm going to do husbands. It's not going to take as much time just because I know the reality is for husbands, they're basically going to take one thing. Um, but we'll see how we get there. Um, just also say, I did empty the bin this morning and put it in the dustbin. So I just want everyone to know that. Um, that's <laughs> and, and I didn't know Lucy was going to address this. Can I just say, see how he's pronounced this? <laughs> <laughs> We're on a journey. Um, as we'll see. So first thing then, in terms of husbands, is headship. I'm going to look at three things, headship, uh, dying, and then treating. Headship, uh, Paul writes this, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. When Paul writes about headship, he's talking to women. He's not talking to the men. He's talking to the wives, and he's not talking to the husbands. I'm not actually going to talk a lot about this. Headship is an instruction he gives to the wives. It's not to the husbands. Paul doesn't say, right, husbands... Make sure you make your wife know you're the head. Continuously show her that you're the head. He doesn't write that. We're going to come on in a moment and say what he does write. But just for us to be clear, because this has been misinterpreted, headship is not about overpowering and overwhelming and conquering. 
Headship here, as John Stott puts it, is a care rather than control, a responsibility rather than a rule. And we see that modelled in Jesus, and that's the benchmark here. Jesus is the head of all of us, and he shows us care rather than control, responsibility rather than rule. And as husbands, that's what we're called to do. And Paul, therefore, says, actually, the point isn't a call to headship, it's actually a call to this, die. That Paul's call is, die. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The model for any husband, the benchmark, the bar, is Jesus' way of loving for all of us which is sacrificial loving, which is him willing to lay down his life, literally go to the cross for every single one of us. And Paul says, oh, that's the benchmark. I remember just before I got married, I was quite young, 22, a friend of mine looked, kind of met with me, said a couple of encouraging things, a couple of discouraging things. One of the things he said, uh, which was discouraging, he says, don't you think you're too young? I said, no, we moved on. He then said, have you read this bit where it says you need to love Lucy as Jesus loves the church? I said, yes, I have. And boy, does that come with a sense of responsibility. And I think it genuinely has. And that sense of, Jesus, I need to continuously keep you in mind. Because when I don't keep Jesus in mind, when I start to kind of think about myself, what happens is I quickly curve in on myself and quickly start to think about my rights within our relationship. Don't worry about the kitchen, Ben. Don't worry about other things. So I tend to get tired of spent my, kind of spelled myself, spent myself out uh, for others. And I get home and then just think, right, I just need some time by myself. I'm just going to turn the TV on, shut the rest of the world out. What happens at that moment is it becomes destructive to mine and Lucy's relationship, mine and my family's relationship. It doesn't mean that I can't ever stop. It means that I have to communicate that. I say, Lucy, I'm, I'm feeling spent. I need to build some time out. But it means that I need to continuously come back and say, Jesus, I need to be like you in this relationship. And therefore, I need everything of you. And I have to spend lots of time looking at who Jesus is and allowing that to start to move out of who I am. And therefore, I'd say dying to myself then causes me to act differently to Lucy. It means I'm dying to serve. But what I'm seeking to do is say, what can I do that's going to benefit Lucy? That's what I'm looking for. And so I have moments, which we'll come on to in the end, of dying to thanks, that I'm on a journey and that there's this heart's desire from the moment I'm getting up before everyone else to say, actually, I'm trying to get everyone ready because my heart here is for the best of everyone else in the house. I'm seeking to say, what can I do today that's going to make Lucy's life easier? Not what am I going to do that's going to cause me to have an easier right? I'm saying, actually, no, I'm going to die to serve. I'm going to die to communicate. Here's the deal. I really like swimming underwater. Like, totally love swimming underwater. I love to push my body to extremes. I try and see how long can I stay underwater swimming. When we used to go on holiday before kids, I just genuinely, I burn in the sun. So it's of no fun to me to be in the sun. I just literally get in the pool and swim lengths underwater, seeing can I get further each time. Now, the thing is, what I do in the swimming pool is how I can be in terms of communication. Some of you are thinking, man, you had sad holidays. Um, that's why we had kids. Um, there's, um, but in it, what, what I do in terms of communication is similar in terms of swimming, is I can feel like, actually, I'm going to just get on with life, get my head down, and occasionally I'll come up for breath and communicate. And at those points, I'll come up and say, you all right? I'm all right. Get back down. Let's go on. What I've learned along the way is that isn't how Lucy needs to communicate. 
And I've learned, actually, I need to die to my way of communicating in order that we communicate, which means that, to be honest, I'm still on the journey on this one, is I need to get good at listening. And listening isn't, I know the answer. Listening is, I understand. And it sometimes takes me quite a long time to understand. But it's doing that. It's also dying to communicate. In other words, seeking to share something of myself. Because so often I'm happy to just keep going. We're all right, aren't we? Let's just keep going. Where actually I need to share stuff that's going on in my life. And it's making the choice to do that. I think it's dying to cause Lucy to be all that God desires. And as a husband, that's that's our goal. It isn't that I'm seeking to make Lucy into what I want her to be. That's not my goal. My goal is to seek to cause Lucy to be everything God wants her to be and to provide every environment possible for that to happen, which means that I have to be patient. I have to go at her speed, not my speed, provide environments where Lucy can figure out what God's saying and get her the space she needs to do that. I think also it's meant that I need to know that I partner with God in this. I remember at the moment where I was considering marrying Lucy, I remember praying and saying, God, how am I going to do this? Like, I, I knew we're both quite strong-willed, and I was thinking, this is, can I do this? And all I felt God say is, I've got this with you. I've got grace for you in this. And like genuinely, from that moment on, I've learned to understand that God has grace for me to be the husband I need to be for Lucy, just as much as he has grace for me when I talk in front of you or when I talk to someone about who Jesus is. It's the same grace, same provision. The question is, am I tapping into it and allowing him to partner with me in what we're trying to do? And then lastly, it's the dying to thanks. It is I'm doing this for gratitude. And so I am learning in terms of pat lunches, of not announcing. We'll see how it goes this week. But it is that sense of actually I'm not dying to do these things in order that others will look in and say, hey, you're great. Or Lucy looking in and saying, you're great. It's rather saying, actually, no, I give this up in order that you be everything you can be. And I'm not looking to benefit myself. Last thing, treating. Paul writes this in terms of treating. He says uh, that we're to treat our wives as we do our own body. And that we're to feed and care for them. That word feed is, is nourish. In other words, what I've got to seek to do is seek to treat Lucy how I want to be treated, to seek to nourish her, to seek to provide environments to feed her. Now, for Lucy, I know one of the best ways I can do that is two ways. One is to listen to her, and the other is to provide her space. And so I try and provide space regularly. And so I have to think in ahead, which sometimes for me is a challenge, but I have to think, okay, I'm going to have to look at this day where I can look to take care of our kids in order that Lucy can get away and be quiet and be by herself, because she needs that. I don't need that as much. And so we have to do that in order that I can take care of her, uh, in ter- terms of feed her. In terms of taking care of, I would say it means that I have to provide environments that is safe for Lucy. There's many different ways that I can seek to care. Can I say quick, easy ones? If you're a husband, is like buying flowers for your wife. It just shows a sense of love and care for them. When it says treating, it is treating. It's not complicated. The other thing I'd say that I think we found in terms of caring is I've pro- we have to provide a safe environment. So for Lucy and I, is we're, we're strong personalities, and therefore we've learned that within strong com- personalities comes sometimes moments of um, pushing against each other's personality. And some people call it arguments. We call it healthy debate. I call it <laughs> Lucy calls it argument. I, I always give a positive spin. Healthy debates. Um, <laughs> In it, what we've learned, though, is that we, part of my care for us is to say we need to have rules of engagement. 
And so in that, when we have kind of arguments, heated discussions, we have kind of a set of principles that are there that allow us to operate within that moment. And they're agreed without beyond the heat of the moment. And so we're not allowed to say things like, you never and you always. One is because I, the only marriage book I ever read said this, is it says, you're never that consistent. And I used to love playing that card. They say, you never do. I'm not that consistent, Lucy, you've got me. I'm not that consistent. I can't possibly have done that. Um, but we never use the words never and always. I think the other things we do is we, have, we agree not to shout. We agree not to swear at each other. We agree that actually there can be moments where it's helpful to one of us take ourselves out of the situation. If it's particularly getting heated, at that point, it isn't that one of us storms off. It's actually that we've agreed and said, right, I'm now going to take myself out of this situation and I'll be back at this time. And so moments earlier on, they haven't, I can't think of the last time it happened, but um, I don't think in the last couple of years, maybe it was. Um, doesn't matter. Um, this is <laughs> in terms of leaving the argument, one of us going outside, walking around. I remember when you lost the track. All right, great. <laughs> I, I, I have a sieve brain. But basically, it's a moment in which I, it usually is me saying, I, can, I need to walk out of this because I'm going to say something or do something that I don't mean to do. And literally, I would say, I'm going to be 15, depending on 15 minutes to half an hour is usually what it takes. And, and then we come back. The other thing in terms of rule engagement is we said, right, we're, we're not going to go to sleep before this has started to get resolved. And we're always going to be specific in terms of what we're asking for forgiveness of. So there's never allowed a blanket thing. I'm sorry. It has to be I'm sorry for. And so we've done that. Okay, let's land this. Two things. One is this. If you're married and you're kind of thinking, well, how enough do you do it? We would do it with God's grace. We also don't have to do it alone. Let's be quick to ask for help. I think often for Lucy and I, there's been moments we've hit things and we thought, actually, we just need to get others involved. And that isn't a statement of weakness. It's a statement of immense strength. That's what I've learned. I think for ages I thought, oh, no, I can't possibly allow anyone in. I can't possibly say I need help because then everyone's going to think, who are you? Whereas actually I've realized, no, no, it's such strength to say, I can't go this alone. Please, can you help us? And so we look to do that. In terms of, like, for all of us then, where do we land it? I'd say, firstly, this. How can I, you, be living more in light of my oneness with Christ? How can I, you, be honoring Christ more in marriages around you and me? And how can I be honoring Christ more in my marriage? Can I leave us with that? Otherwise, we're done.